Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning as we begin the seventh week of It's Palooza. More on that later in the broadcast. In the meantime, an alleged false claims act lawsuit has been filed against Providence St. Joseph Health. The lawsuit seeks more than $180 million related to alleged upcoding of Medicare claims. We have two reports. Mary Inman will give us an update on the lawsuit. Frank Cohen will report on the data analytics involved in this developing story. When should you voluntarily refund overpayments? Healthcare attorney David Glazer is standing by with answers. Dr. Michael Salvador examines some of today's medical alchemists who could be turning health into disease. And Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener quiz. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. As I reported in a Rack Monitor e-news article published last Thursday, CMS held a listening session call on the new proposals in the 2019 Physician Fee Schedule Rule. I thought the CMS personnel did a great job answering very difficult questions. As I reported, an administrator from a large nephrology group in North Carolina did a great job refuting CMS's projections that the financial effects of this proposal would be minimal. And Frank's Cohen, Frank Cohen's calculations, as he's presented on this broadcast earlier, support that. We also have to remember that when CMS adopted the two midnight rule, they predicted a large increase in the number of inpatient admissions and cut all DRGs by 2% to maintain budget neutrality. That projection, of course, turned out to be wrong, and three years later, they had to raise payments by 6% to repay hospitals. She and another caller also raised a very important point. If simplicity is the goal, making significant changes to only office visits and only fee-for-service Medicare patients will not accomplish that. It will mean that a physician will need to determine the insurance coverage for every patient to determine which documentation and coding system to use. Of course, CMS has no control over what other payers do, but it would certainly make sense for them to get the cooperation agreement for them to also adopt these proposals. Then, of course, the proposed changes would only apply to office visits. That means a specialist would use the new system in the office, the old system when seeing patients in the hospital that are inpatients, and the new system when seeing an outpatient at the hospital. And if the patient's listed as Medicare, but then it's determined that their coverage was actually Medicare Advantage, it's going to be a real mess. We also got an email response to my article expressing concern about the effects of these reduced documentation requirements on physician liability. The writer suggested that if doctors did not have to document as much as they do, they would not have proof to defend themselves in the event of an adverse outcome. While I understand the writer's concern, I hope it is unfounded. What doctors would no longer be required to document are things such as that the patient's head was of normal size, or that their pupils reacted properly to accommodation, or that their 95-year-old mother died of old age. 
I would hope doctors would be smart enough to continue to document items that are pertinent to the patient's case with enough detail to defend themselves if necessary. If they don't, well, then they have no one else to blame but themselves. Now, a bigger concern of the writer, which may be valid, is that the abbreviated documentation may make it more difficult to fully capture all codable diagnoses, and that can have a profound effect in the office setting on the determination of hierarchical conditional categories. The common period ends in two weeks. So far, there have been 3,004 comments submitted to CMS for them to address. I certainly don't envy them. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener quiz is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And this morning, I'm going to take a little cue book from one of my very favorite childhood book series, and that's Nancy Drew. In fact, I'm going to pick a couple novels penned in 1932 because I couldn't decide which one, The Clue in the Diary and Nancy's Mysterious Letter. I'm sure many of our listeners have enjoyed Nancy Drew books as I did. Well, this is about a targeted probe and educate situation. I had reported on these a number of times over the past several months about outpatient therapy providers getting these letters with the Medicare Targeted Probe and Educate program. I have a provider that received such a letter, contacted me. We followed all the instructions very carefully. Um, Then we got the ADR request, and we responded very carefully to the ADR request. Um, There was a few odd things involved, but we certified they were okay all the packets went in and we were waiting to hear exactly what was going on and the provider then noticed that their um, remittance advices that were coming in from the MAC actually indicated that every single thing was denied so we went back looked at the letter and the letter said you might get the remittance advice ahead of our appointment with you for targeted probe and educate so we called the MAC just in case, followed all the instructions, and the MAC said, we have no record of a targeted probe and educate. We have no such record of any type of a program. So the provider, very upset, we script another call back into CMS to the right parties, and they're still indicating um, no letter, no targeted probe and educate. We have no such record. So there we go. We've got to find the clue in the diary, perhaps Nancy's mysterious letter. So pay attention when you're getting your targeted probe and educate and stay right on top of it every step of the way. Now for our poll this morning, courtesy of David Glazer, as a preference to his upcoming segment. If you choose to refund money to Medicare, do you think, check number one, you must go back 10 years because that's the maximum statute of limitations under the False Claims Act. Number two, you must go back six years because of the 60-day rule. Number three, you must go back five years after the year in which the payment was made because of the law David mentioned, 1970. Or number four, you must go back 48 months because of Medicare's reopening rules. And finally, you must go back three years as required in the RAC statement of work. David, I can't wait to see the responses on this. Chuck? Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Quiz. 
later in this broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Mary Inman, and Dr. Michael Salvador. This is Monday. It's August 27th. It's the seventh week of Ipsapalooza. It's a summer school to learn all about the inpatient perspective payment system final rule. And this is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you frustrated by compliance webcasts that are simply a rehash of everything you already know? Are you looking for fresh, timely compliance content that is as relevant to your compliance team as it is to the HIM and Revenue Cycle teams? Look no further than the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. Now you and your team can get the latest compliance and regulatory information directly from Rack Monitor, the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast subscription now so everyone on your team and other departments will have the latest information to stay compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. For more information and to subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcasts, simply click on the handout tab in today's program. We're back and a program note. The 2019 IPPS final rule includes new regulatory initiatives that will impact your facility's quality reporting program, your EHR certification, and reimbursement. To learn more, register now to attend a very important webcast on these regulations. Now, this webcast is coming your way on Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register to this webcast, go to the handout tab of today's Monitor Monday. So here's a question for you. When should you refund an overpayment? Healthcare Attorney David Glazer joins us now with advice as it relates to our Monitor Money listener quiz. David, when should they do that? Chuck, I'm going to answer that and explain how you can use that question to handle the both vexing and vital question of determining whether you've got a good healthcare lawyer. So when you ask your lawyer how far back you need to go, the lawyer's answer isn't what you most need to focus on. Instead, you want to look at the amount of information they give you that's going to help reveal their expertise. You know, often a short answer is great. You want your lawyer to say something short. But here a reply like six years or worse yet, 10 years is troubling because there's not a really clear answer to our quiz. A good healthcare lawyer is going to explain the difference between the statutes and the regulations and explain how they contradict one another and offer opinions about how they work. So the 60-day regulation asserts that you have to go back six years from the date you identify the overpayment. Now, the first place that people can go wrong is that the six years doesn't run from the date you first learned of the possible overpayment. It runs from when you identify the overpayment, and it defines identification as quantification, which means you go back six years from the date you determine the amount of the overpayment, not six years from the date that the issue is first reported. But the analysis doesn't end there. I don't believe that CMS has the authority to impose the 60-day regulation. In recent weeks, we've talked about the Social Security Act, Section 1870. That law creates a presumption that providers and suppliers are without fault five years after the year in which payment was made. When it was proposed, I wrote a comment to CMS noting that the 60-day rule appears to violate 1870. CMS opted to ignore my comments but they did address a similar comment about Section 1879 of the Act. They were dismissive. They said, and I quote, we believe it's inappropriate for providers or suppliers to make determinations regarding their own knowledge of non-coverage or whether they were the cause of an overpayment. 
In other words, according to CMS, providers don't get to apply the law. And I'm sorry, a government agency doesn't have the authority to unilaterally contradict a federal statute. So finally, your healthcare lawyer should also mention 42 CFR 405.980 that limits the government's ability to reopen claims after four years unless there's fraud or similar fault. Now, under the 60-day rule, you're only required to refund an overpayment, and an overpayment is defined as money to which you're not entitled under the Medicare statute. If the government can't reopen the claim, it seems like you're entitled to keep the money, meaning there's no overpayment under the 60-day rule. In other words, a good health care lawyer will say there's an argument that you only need to go back 48 months. A very strong statutory argument, you only need to go back five years after the year in which payment was made, and that CMS will possibly insist you go back six years. A good counsel will help you decide which tact to take. There might be compelling reasons to choose one of the options over another, but you have the right to know, and really the obligation to know, the pros and cons. If your lawyer isn't giving you the information you need to make these choices, you need to choose a new lawyer. So, Chuck, I guess part of the message here is you want your lawyer to be the information society. And to paraphrase what that group sang in the 80s in the song, What's on Your Mind, better known as the Pure Energy song, you want to know what they're thinking? There are some things you can't hide. So the short answer is I think you go back 48 months, but the answer is complicated. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Pure energy. Pure energy. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. I was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. This morning, our Monday focus is about modern-day medical alchemists. Today, alchemy has the potential to turn health into disease. Reporting our Monday focus is Dr. Michael Salvador. Good morning, Dr. Salvador. It seems like today's medical alchemists have a rather unpleasant link to an ancient time. That's true, Chuck. And, you know, this unnecessary treatment of asymptomatic bacteria uh, is a nationwide problem. It's a well-known problem. Uh, it, the practice of this treatment has been refuted by numerous articles. Uh, a, a quick Google Scholar search reveals over 25,000 search results. And it's complications of uh, C. difficile colitis, drug resistance, and even death are well documented. But the problem persists. The big question about the recalcitrance of this problem to any long-term fix is puzzling from an intellectual point of view, but that's perhaps because the problem isn't an intellectual one. Uh, the facts, the knowledge, the best practices are all out there for physicians to see. They are just not practiced. So one is left to consider the non-intellectual causes. Doctors don't treat asymptomatic bacteria out of anger. They don't do it to be funny. They do it, I think, out of fear that is in part driven by the culture of medicine. I mean, the medical culture we live in at its roots is one of treating. 
doctors like myself think they do good by treating. Uh, and, and to a great extent, it's more about treating than preventing, although prevention is sort of coming along slowly. Uh, we're all more afraid of missing a problem than creating one. And uh, this is perhaps the same psychology that underlies the resistance to palliative care. And I guess it should come to no surprise to anyone that a profession that in the last 30 days of a cancer patient hospitalizes 50% of them, 25% in an ICU, and gives them 10, and 10% get chemotherapy when her death is not inevitable but actually inexorable, would continue to treat a problem like asymptomatic bacteria that is only in their mind. Uh, but there's more to the culture of medicine that causes well-educated and well-meaning physicians to unnecessarily treat asymptomatic bacteria. It's the stress, as the headlines blare out, burnout. Stress makes burnout even scarier. And I think basically you can't take good care of patients if you're afraid of sick people. And I think to cure this fear, you know, you, it takes calmness and time, and all these things are missing in the medical culture that is hectic, and this culture is frenetic, frenzied, and at time frantic, and these are, in fact, a recipe for making bad decisions like treating asymptomatic bacteria. Thank you, Dr. Salvador. That was Dr. Michael Salvador. Dr. Salvador is the physician advisor and medical director of palliative care team at BB Healthcare in Delaware. And you can read Dr. Salvador's excellent article on this subject on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. An alleged false claims act lawsuit has been filed against Providence St. Joseph Hospital. The lawsuit seeks more than $180 million related allegations of coding Medicare claims. We have two reports this morning. Mary Inman reports on the merits of the lawsuit, and Frank Cohen is standing by to report on data analytics associated with this developing story. Here now, reporting from London, is Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. As regular listeners of this program know, the whistleblower cases I report on are ones that typically have been brought by the quintessential whistleblower, a healthcare industry insider who has observed firsthand a fraud perpetuated by her employer and having brought the fraud to her employer for redress and been rebuffed, launches a False Claims Act case on the government's behalf. For instance, in May, I reported on the federal government's settlement of a False Claims Act case against Banner Health that was brought by whistleblower Cecilia Guardiola, who served as Banner's former corporate director of clinical documentation, for practices she uncovered in the course of her job. The information a whistleblower insider like Ms. Guardiola provides is invaluable precisely because it comes from the inside and can help prosecutors establish that, instead of resulting from an innocent mistake, the employer's alleged fraudulent practices were committed knowingly. However, today's lawsuit against Providence Health Services and its consultant, J.A. Thomas & Associates, JATA, is different. It is part of a new breed of whistleblower cases in which the whistleblower is an outsider, a third-party expert with subject matter knowledge in the field, viewing the target defendant from the outside. Instead of an individual employee of Defendants Providence Health or Providence Consultant J.A. Thomas & Associates, Integra Med Analytics, the whistleblower here, is a data analysis firm who uses statistical analysis of publicly available data to attempt to uncover and prove fraud. In this case, 
Whistleblower Integra Med Analytics alleges that it conducted an analysis of seven years' worth of CMS claims data for a subset of Providence hospitals who used JADA as a consultant and found that those Providence hospitals were statistically more likely than other hospitals to add to a hospital claim three secondary diagnoses, encephalopathy, respiratory failure, and malnutrition, that can increase a hospital's Medicare payments by $1,000 to $25,000. It is notable that Integra does not rely exclusively on its outside evidence, that is, its statistical analyses of public data, to allege fraud against Providence and JATA. In its complaint, Integra acknowledges that it supplemented its analysis of CMA CMS claims data with more traditional classic inside information and thereby confirmed its findings. According to the complaint, Integra conducted what it describes as an exhaustive, multifaceted investigation whereby Integra interviewed former employees of Providence and JATA and reviewed their marketing materials to show Providence's alleged false claims were not only intentional, but part of a systemic effort to boost Medicare revenue. Integra's complaint is replete with references to internal documents, presumably provided by former employee insiders, allegedly containing examples of JATA coaching and steering Providence doctors to upcode for CCs and MCCs. It is Integra's development of this evidence, the more classic inside information, that makes it appear more like your quintessential whistleblower case and less groundbreaking, an angle that has been neglected in much of the news reporting to date. In this way, Integra is more of a hybrid outsider-insider or a case of whistleblower-outsider-plus, the plus factor being an injection of information gained from the inside showing defendants' purported knowledge of the practices to allegations otherwise arising from public records. Since the government has declined to join Integra's whistleblower case, Integra is invoking its right as a whistleblower under the False Claims Act to proceed with a declined case on the government's behalf. In the meantime, while this case progresses, we will continue to keep our eyes out for more cases by whistleblower outsiders, including Integra's sister company, Integra REC LLC, who, according to the complaint, also has served as a whistleblower and successfully initiated numerous cases under the False Claims Act, alleging fraud in mortgage-backed securities and other financial markets. Whistleblower outsiders appear to be on the rise. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Mary. That was nice to recognize whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law offices of Constantine Cannon in London. We continue our reporting on this developing story. Here now to report on the data analytics associated with the allegations of upcoding of this lawsuit is Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Chuck. And as most people know who know me, know that I'm an obsessive-compulsive mathematician. I'm an evangelist in the area of analytics. I spent the majority of my adult life advocating for the use of healthcare analytics. And while it is a tool, it's not a cure-all. And like any other tool, one needs to know how to use it to make it effective. Uh, as a lot of people will recall when... The CMS started publishing the physician utilization public use files. In 2014, media outlets and whistleblower wannabes used the data to call out physicians that they, were, that, they were, that they said were abusing Medicare. And in most of those cases, they were wrong, but that didn't stop them. You know, in reviewing this complaint against Providence, I came across some issues that really caught 
my attention. Uh, for example, in paragraph 49, it says, and I quote, kind of, Relator uncovered Providence and Jata's fraud by employing unique algorithms and statistical processes to analyze inpatient claims data for short-term acute care hospitals from 2011 through 2017, and it says obtained from the CMS. So it goes on to say that these proprietary methods have allowed Relator uh, to identify with specificity the false claims made by Providence to fraudulently inflate revenue on Medicare claims. Well, I don't care how good an analyst you are. There simply is not enough information available in the public use database, such as MedPower or Pepper, uh, to be able to know for certain that claims are fraudulent. And the complaint said that the relator filtered her findings to only include those instances where those major complications were used more than twice the national rate or were used at a rate three percentage points higher than in other hospitals to be considered a false claim. First of all, if I was Providence, I'd surely require that relator to show how they determined that exactly twice the average or a rate of 3% higher was truly statistically significant. Now, I'll grant that one can identify anomalous or suspicious events and flag them for review, but until the medical record is opened, one cannot even begin to apply the word fraud, which is what appears to have happened here. So I would guess that this proprietary method had to do with the relator gaining access, not just to employees, but actual medical records and reviewing them. And maybe they did that legally, maybe they didn't, but in my opinion, it would have been necessary. The complaint also states that, in quote, I quote, benchmarking has the advantage of allowing for very specific and comparative groupings. This avoids imposing specific linearity on the data, which in turn gives relators methodology more statistical power and precision. What a bunch of hooey. First of all, linearity is characterized by an ordered and predictable system, a benefit for this type of research. So I can only believe that in the absence of survival analysis, true linearity would have been an advantage, not a disadvantage. And it would have nothing, have nothing to do with statistical power and precision unless it was associated to sampling. And if it was, linearity would still be a benefit. Plus, benchmarking against unvalidated databases are useful for only one thing, and that's identifying potential risk or anomalies. This is just a bunch of doublespeak. Uh, I've testified as a statistical expert in a few fraud hearings, and the one thing I know for a fact is that one cannot extrapolate or infer fraud. And my opinion is based on hearing in person the detailed explanations that a judge will give a jury on the highly specific requirements for findings of fraud for each individual claim. In the end, I can't comment as to Providence's guilt or innocence. What I can say is that in my expert opinion, the use of analytics alone cannot be, or cannot be used to determine fraud for any given claim or set of claims. And as for me, Chuck, I choose to use my powers for good. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the director of business intelligence and analytics for Doctors Management. And one last program note it's Palooza. Continue with five webcasts, all designed to help you get a better understanding of the IPBS final rule. For more information, go to the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Listener Quiz, and here again is Nancy Beckley. Well, it's kind of exciting to see uh, the results of our poll here. And following this, Chuck, I'm going to go straight to a question with David in the interest of time. So on our poll results today, 8% of our listeners think we must go back 10 years. 34% of our listeners 
are opting for six years because of the 60-day rule. 16% think they must go back five. 10% are opting for 48 months. And of course, 30% are thinking that the RAC's directing it, and that's their statement of work three years. David, let's talk about this for a quick second. I know you gave your segment on it, but what are the revolving Rubik's Cube things here that our listeners need to take into account? This is a really difficult question to answer, and I get why listeners are all over the board, although there are a couple of answers to me that should be clearly beyond the pale. Ten years, definitely not ten years for a voluntary refund. And the rack statement of work, I don't really understand what the basis of using that for the refund. So the things I'm going to tend to focus in on are the 48 months for the reopening limit, although that's more complicated if you think that there is any fraud or similar fault. And the regulation defines similar fault somewhat more broadly than one might like. The real limit I'm going to tend to focus in on is 1870 of the Social Security Act. But the big question is, your lawyer should be telling you about each of these and why this is so complicated. And you go through it and you then are going to make a decision, you know, you might not want to pick a fight with CMS if it's a refund of 5000 bucks, right? Maybe life is too short for that. And if you're talking about a million dollars, you may want to say, hey, let's, let's draw the line at the most narrow place we reasonably can, and that might be 48 months. And I think it's very important to remember that when you're doing a voluntary refund and you tell the government what's going on, it's really difficult for someone to argue that your behavior was fraudulent. Thanks, David. That was a great poll. Chuck, back to you to wrap up. Thanks, Nancy, very much, and thank you, David Glazer. That is going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, Nancy Beckley, and Dr. Michael Salvador. And we thank you very much for starting off your week with us this morning. And a program note, there won't be a Monitor Monday next Monday, September 3rd. We're all going to take a break and observe Labor Day. Until we return on September 10th, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday Interact Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us today, and have a compliant Labor Day. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.